Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've got a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful God, we do give you thanks for this word that you put before us like a banquet feast. I pray that you would feed us and fill us with your word, that it would strengthen and encourage and challenge and lead us on the pathway of righteousness, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. When I was... uh, 19-year-old young lad, I went with a group of college-age friends uh, on a trip uh, to Liverpool to work with a church there for a week. But before we got to Liverpool, they gave us a day to explore uh, London. And for me, you know, a kid growing up in, in the country of Sunnyside, London was like nothing I had ever seen before. You know, you'd ride, you know, you'd go underground, you get on the tube, you pop out, and it's like every place you come out of the tube is a whole new world. You know, from palaces to, you know, Big Ben to all the, all the things. I saw them all. And, uh, and, but there was nothing quite prepared me when we, when we walked up the stairs uh, of the tube into Piccadilly Square. If you know, Piccadilly Square was kind of like their version of the, you know, in New York Times Square. Uh, but as I climbed up uh, the stairs, the, the, the noise of the, the area just got louder and louder. And, and as I popped my head up, it was swimming in a sea of billboards and images, people going left and right and everywhere. And all these images, all these uh, billboards, they're all saying, look at me, 
Look at me, give me your attention, I'm gonna make you happy. And it was overwhelming for me. All the, all the noise, all the, the visual stimulation. It, as the saying goes, I wasn't, I wasn't in Kansas anymore. And here I think as, you know, as Adam and Eve and their family emerged from the Garden of Eden, they're, fist, they're facing a, a similar scene. As they emerge from the garden, it's like them ascending from the tube into Piccadilly Square. It's a new world, right? From the quiet joy of the garden to a world filled with noise, from uninterrupted affections aimed towards God and uninterrupted worship of God to a world filled with interruptions, with other things vying for their affections and their attention and their, and their worship. And at the heart of this opening scene outside of the garden, in the heart of this opening scene of, of life in the wilderness, right? Life in this untamed world, I think what we're gonna find is a battle of affections happening. What we find is a battle of worship. And this battle in the wilderness, is, and this battle for worship is still you know, what we've, where we find ourselves today in this world. Where other gods are fighting for our affections, where things that promise us life but deliver us death uh, you know, we all feel that war within our souls, the daily battles, the noise, you know, you, and there's nowhere you can go to fully drown this out because the noise goes with you because it's inside of you. This is not a battle that you can run from, right? To be alive is to be in this battle, to be immersed in it. There's a, there's a war for your worship raging in this world. You can try to ignore it. Our enemy likes it when we ignore it, but it is everywhere, and it's overwhelming. And in the tragic story of Cain and Abel, one we're probably all well familiar with, we experience this battle in the new world for the first time. And we find both that losing our battle with sin leads us into this dark place of isolation and death. We see the fruit of our false worship, as well as as we find a God who is with his people a God who's profoundly patient even in the midst of their strain, even in the midst of their messes. We find both a stark warning that sin will kill you and an inescapable hope that God revives the sin-marred soul. That our God is the God who draws near in order to stir your affections towards him, who, who is the very source of light and life. And this morning we're gonna explore this life in the wilderness. Just speaking of two things, the first thing we're gonna explore is the insidious pathway of sin so we're going to spend most of our time. And then following that, we're going to talk about the unwavering grace of God. So first, as we consider life in the wilderness, we're going to see the insidious pathway of sin. You know, I, I say insidious because the word has this connotation of sneakiness to it. It's something that looks good but is rotten in the end and leads you um, into darkness. And in this first story out of the garden, Moses is showing the people the insidiousness of sin, how it tempts us and slowly leads us to death. Look with me back here, verse 1 and 2. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. You know, to, to set the stage here, you know, it's been some time. It doesn't tell us how much time, but it's been some time since they've been out in the wilderness. Cain and Abel are old enough to, to be workers in, in the ground. And you know, Eve bearing sons is important because of the promise just given to her in chapter three that one of her sons would one day uh, deliver the people from sin, that, that they would crush the head of the serpent, that to deliver them from wilderness. And I imagine you know, what, what might have been go- going through the minds of 
of Adam and Eve, you know, could one of these sons of ours be the great deliverer? Could, could Cain or Abel be the one that's actually going to crush the head of the, the serpent? And uh, that's not how this story goes. Uh, back in verse 3, it says this. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. You know, what we are finding here is actually, it's it's a worship service, right? Whenever you find God present with his people and you find sacrifices, what you're witnessing is a, is a worship service of sorts. And so Cain and Abel are bringing their offerings of worship to God. And, you know, and speaking of this, I've heard a lot of people try to suggest that, that Abel's sacrifice was accepted because it was an animal sacrifice and Cain's wasn't because it was of the ground. But this is just not true of scripture and sacrifices. Actually, later when the sacrificial system is established, you find out that there are actually are grain offerings. And so the problem with Cain's sacrifice is actually not the substance of it. I think there's a key word in the text here that, that gives us a, a, an idea behind what it's happening. It's this word we find with Abel's sacrifice, and it's this word firstborn. It's this added qualifier here saying that Abel's sacrifice was of his firstborn of the flock and of the fat portions. It's, it's the best of what he has. It's the most valuable of what he has. And when you give of the first, you don't take some and then give the leftovers. He's, he's, he's giving the first of what he has, and then he's take, take, taking the leftovers for himself, so his sacrifice or his worship is is accepted because he has a heart of worship that says to God, "Right, take the best that I have." It's accepted because of his affections. And when you look at Cain's sacrifice here, we don't get the qualifier of first fruits, do we? Which begins to paint a picture from the beginning that his heart is not there. He is giving because he's supposed to, not a, not a, not a, out of affections that are stirred towards God. Right? He isn't giving from a heart of love of God, but what we find in this story is that Cain only cares about Cain. Right? This idea is confirmed in New Testament Hebrews when the writer tells us that Cain's sacrifice was rejected because he didn't have faith. Abel's was, was accepted because he had faith. Right? To not have faith and still worship is not accepted because it's meaningless. If you have no faith in God, then all the words that you put in your mouth here are meaningless. The food that you put in your mouth here does nothing. It's, it's only something in, in faith. And so Cain gives to God, but not his best. He withholds just what he assumed was the bare minimum to check the boxes of worship and move on with his day in life. And what we begin to see happening here is, is at the root of, of sin, at the beginning of that pathway of descent into sin, is a problem of our worship. At the first step down the pathway of sin is misdirected worship. You become like what you worship. The pathway to sin begins with our worship. And the, the next stop of this pathway that, that Cain is descending upon is unrepentance. We see this here in verse 6 to 7. He says this, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Right? God rejects his sacrifice and how does Cain respond? It says his face falls. It says he gets very angry. Well, what should his response be? Well, when confronted with false worship, like confronted with any sin, the response should be to correct it, right? To repent. 
but that's not what Cain does. Cain digs his heels and he gets angry. His heart becomes hardened. He thinks his sacrifice should be accepted, that it was good enough, thinking, what do you want from me, God? What more can I do for you? You know, this is what sin does. It says here that it's desires contrary for you. It deceives you to the point where you think you are right, even when you're confronted with the truth that you're wrong. In the midst of this, just look and see God's kindness to him still. He is like a loving father offering correction to Cain, saying, listen, if you do good, will I not lift you up? Which is to say, if you repent, if you correct this, will I not forgive you? And when you do poorly, if you reject my ways, if you walk in disobedience, you're encouraging the sin that's crouching at your door and it will devour you. It is contrary to you. And God reminds him of his call as an encouragement. Have dominion over it. Kill it. Crush it. Right? To be a serpent crusher in a way, be of the seed of the woman, not of the seed of the, the serpent. And so God is offering him a, a warning not to continue down this path. He's saying, come back. He's offering a lifeline. You, don't keep on going down this path. He's saying either you will kill your sin or your sin will kill you, which is true of all of our sin. Either we kill our sin or our sin kills us. But unfortunately, Cain does not listen to the pleas of the father. And in verse eight, we find uh, the most heinous act that you can commit towards somebody. Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. First case of murder. And as uh, Cain makes this choice, he joins the ranks of the serpent. Deceiving his brother into the field, just like the serpent deceived Eve, only to lift his hand against his brother and murder him. Just like the serpent deceived his mother Eve and, and brought the human race into the curse. And so now, you know, we find that Cain is cursed just like the serpent was. You know, sometimes when I think about Cain and Abel, I, I wonder, you know, when they were younger brothers, you know, boys fight, brothers fight. Um, we know this. But I wonder if they had moments of, of peace when they were younger. If, you know, exploring this wide world that was like so little inhabited, right? If they, if they had fun adventures, exploring the wild, going on hunts. Um, did they used to be good friends? And, uh, and now his devotion to his false affections has led Cain to do something that's unthinkable, to spill the blood of his own brother, the one who shares his own blood. And this is where you find the sin that you find in your heart is not benign. It leads us to the unthinkable, even murder. This is what the pathway of sin does to us. And this is what Moses is showing his people here, right? It slowly will lead you into a descent into darkness. I mean, you know the old tale about uh, how to boil a frog, right? If you put a, a, a frog in a boiling pot, the frog's going to jump out. But if you put a, a frog in lukewarm water and slowly heat it up, eventually the the frog will get boiled alive. Children, don't try this at home. I can see your, you know, the wheels turn. It's like, oh, I can kill a frog. Don't do that. But we, we know that story, right? This is what sin does to us, isn't it? The water is our, our false worship. It seems good at the time. It seems like we can manage it. It seems like it's not that big of a deal. But we don't realize that we're sitting in a pot of death, which leads us ever into the darkness until we find ourselves doing things that we would never imagine doing. When we find God confronting Cain, and then we find God confronting 
Cain here in his sin in verse nine. He says this, and the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You know, even in this, God again gives Cain chances to turn. He asks him, where is your brother? Cain lies, right? Am I my brother's keeper? It's funny how often I actually hear that quoted in the positive way. Like, am I supposed to take care of my brother? Um, as if to say I'm not actually responsible for my brother. But is that true? No. You actually are your brother's keeper. And this is another side of sin. We think sin is just this individual thing. It's just a sin that just affects us. But here we find it affects everybody. You actually are your brother's keeper. You know, the, the same word that's used to describe Adam's work in the garden in chapter 215, to, to work and keep the garden, to protect it, is the same word that's used here. We are each other's keepers. He was supposed to protect his brother from violence. He was supposed to protect his brother from the effects of the serpent, from the influences of the serpent. But what this reveals is that Cain actually was the serpent that Abel needed to be protected from. That's the irony of the story. All right, the pathway of sin led him to a place where instead of being the protector, instead of fulfilling his calling, he was the intruder. Instead of being a serpent crusher, he was a serpent's friend. And this is what sin does in your life. It twists you. It makes the good bad and the bad good. It makes us unrecognizable to the point where we befriend and join the, the ranks of our great enemy. And even in the face of all of this, how does Cain respond to God's patience? Which God is very patient with him here. With remorse? Is he sad? Is he sorrowful that his brothers died? That he, is he sorrowful that he probably caused Adam and Eve pain? No. Who is Cain worried about here? He's worried about himself. Right? He says, my, my punishment is greater than I can bear. He's, he's only worried about himself. He's worried that someone's going to kill him. He's self-absorbed. And yet God patiently, what does he do? He actually puts a mark on him. That it's a mark of the curse, but it's actually a mark of protection. So that no one will harm him. And then you find these haunting words at the end. In verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The saddest part of this story is, is where it leads Cain. Away from God's presence, east of Eden. East of Eden is always away from God and his presence. And this is where the pathway of sin takes you. It takes you into exile. It takes you into death. It takes you away from God's presence. Essentially, he's walking into a hell on earth. From what seemed to be this small thing, right, this unaccepted form of worship at the beginning, has now led him into this pathway of death, of, to murder, to exile. This, the, this is the insidious pathway of sin. This is the fruit of your sin, death. Even those little things that you think aren't big deals, that you nurture, that you don't confess, this is, the, this is its fruit, it's, it's death, and it leads you to call good things evil and evil things good, and it, it makes you blind to reality. You know, a, a friend of mine's family, they're really good friends with Edith Schaefer, and whether you know her or not, this is not a big deal. She writes great books, though. You should look her up. Um, but when she, Edith Schaefer was older, she would visit St. Louis. She would stay with my friend uh, in his family's house. And uh, during one of her last trips, when she was aging um, dramatically and she wasn't seen re really well, 
my friend walked in downstairs into a room and he found Edith Shavers staring out the back window into the lawn and she had this kind of smile on her face, just really pleasant. And he kind of walks up and he's like, oh, what are you, what are you looking at, Edith? And she goes, oh, I'm looking at these butterflies outside. And so he goes, oh, I want to look at butterflies outside. So he walks up and kind of leans next to her, looks outside and to his horror, what does he find? He finds flies flying into a, a fly zapper. They're getting killed in front of him. Uh, but for her, her eyes, she wasn't seeing well, so she thought they were butterflies. Uh, but this is what sin does to us, right? It makes you blind to its effects. It presents as butterflies, but in reality, it's the sin that's killing you. And it's not just you, but the people around you too. Sin doesn't affect just us, it affects all those we touch. Someone the other day just showed me an old painting of the tragic scene of Adam and Eve. And in it, Adam and Eve are sitting there and they have their, their dead son, Cain, just laying across their lap. And you can just feel the weight of the picture, the weight of the tragedy. And there's so many different ways. For one, just the sadness that these, these parents are, have a dead son in their lap. It's the most unimaginable thing you can think of as a parent is one of your children dying. And they're beholding it. I imagine it's not just that that's going through the mind, but they lost their other son, Cain. Now he's gone too. So now they're left with, with no sons. Not only that, they have to be thinking, this is the weight of, this is the fruit of, of my sin in the, in the garden. This is what giving into temptation has brought into this world. The weight they must have felt. The guilt they must have felt. Staring at the fruit of their sin, which seemed so innocent at the time. Just taking that little piece of fruit. And now they're seeing the end of it and the death. And not only that, you have to think that they're wondering, uh, is the promise of God that he's going to send another to crush the head of the serpent, is that still at play or is that over? Which is actually constantly an issue throughout the Old Testament when God's people disobey. The question that's forefront on their mind is, is God still going to keep his promises to his people in the midst of their failure? In the midst of their wandering, in the midst of their false worship? Their sin has brought death into the world. They are feeling the effects of it. And the pictures turn to you and I saying, do you want your idol worship? Do you want to give in to that temptation? Behold your idols this morning. They are dead. And they will bring you into death too. And God puts this picture for us in the beginning of the Bible to, 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 that we can see clearly. That you can see clearly that the reality and the effects of sin, it touches everything. And as you consider this story, maybe you feel the weight of your own sin. The weight of your own guilt. So where does this story leave us? Well, even in the most brutal of stories, we find glimmers of hope. Because scripture is not here to leave you without hope, but it's here to call the world rightly and give you hope in the midst of a broken world. And, and even in the most brutal of stories, we find this hope. And there's this beautiful truth here that as heavy as the weight of sin is, it pales in comparison to the weight of glory. And there, there are two things that are always true about our sin. For one, our sin is always more heinous than we believe it is. And also that God's grace is always more abundant towards his children than we could ever imagine. And this is what we find here hidden in this story is the unwavering grace of God. And we, I think we see the grace of God here in a couple ways. First, I've alluded to a lot of it throughout this, but it's that when you look at this story and you look at God's interactions with Cain, and it's, and it's Cain's sin, what do you find? You find a very patient, loving God. God is patient with us in our sin. It, it doesn't mean that he leaves us in our sin or that there are not consequences for our sin. Even if Cain would have repented, there would have been consequences for murder. He wants our obedience. 
But it does mean that he walks with us, calling us back to himself, even in our sin. You know, the Old Testament calls him long in the nose, which means he's long-suffering. Which means he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And even in the most heinous acts, God draws near. In the, in the conversations here, who's the initiator of these conversations here in this text? It's always God coming to Cain. God knows very well what Cain has done. It's not a mystery to him. And yet God moves towards us, even in our sin, even in our selfishness. He marks him so he doesn't get murdered himself, which is a wild thing if you think about it, because Cain should be put to death. And yet he's protected by this mark. The grace of God, his unmerited favor towards Cain is strange to us. It's foreign. It's, it, because I think it's one of the things that keeps us from that keeps us on, on the path of sin is that we feel like we can never be forgiven for the sins that we've committed. Right? Sin loves to stay hidden because in the light it dies. And if you're stuck right now, if you're feeling, feeding hidden sins, this is an invitation to step into the light, to trust the unwavering grace of God that is not scared by your sin. Right? If God isn't scared by the first murder that's, that's committed by humanity, then he isn't scared by anything that you are doing or anything that you have done. And it isn't just in this story where we find grace, though, but I'm going to cheat a little bit, and I'm going to jump to the end of chapter 4, which we're going to jump in more uh, next week. Hopefully I don't ruin my sermon next week by doing this, but that's fine. Um, you guys will forget it. The, um, <laughs> but at the end of chapter 4, what do we find? It says, but Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killing him, for Cain killed him. Seth is born. It's this beautiful kind of hint of glimmer of hope at the end of this story. It's a replacement, a new serpent crusher. crusher. It's, it's a resurrection story after all. You know, the thing about resurrection stories is that you have to die first, right? And in the midst of death, we find God is always at work fulfilling his promise because who comes in the line of Seth? Well, the greatest serpent crusher of all, Jesus Christ, right? The long-awaited Messiah. The reality is we can never have dominion over our sin like we're supposed to. We're always gonna struggle with it and uh, we feel the weight of that and we give in to temptation. We need a better Adam. We need a better blood to lead us and this is what Jesus has come to do for us. Christ, who in the New Testament tells us, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, right? Where, where all Abel's blood could do is cry for vengeance. Christ's blood cries out, speaking a better word, destroying the work of the serpent. He is the great dragon slayer of legend. The, the vengeance doesn't land on Cain for his disobedience or for you and I for our disobedience and our love of idols, but on Christ himself. This is the better word. Vengeance has been satisfied. The blood of Jesus covers all our sin. Even the ones we tremble to name, the ones we fear to bring to mind, even now, those are forgiven by Jesus' blood. And it's the only blood that could cleanse it because it speaks a better word. It is a stronger word. It's an unbreaking word. And as it does this, it doesn't just forgive us, but it actually brings us back in, into the presence of God. It pulls us from the east back into the west, bringing us back into the presence of God, back into this place of worship, back into a place where our, our, even our affections for God are, are reoriented. And now Jesus, doing this, he's ushering in his kingdom where he points this one glorious day in the future 
Well, there will be a day when we will live in a world where all the, the competitors for our affections will be no more. Where we will live in a world at peace again. A world filled with God's presence. This is the word that the blood of Christ speaks to us. And maybe you know, you're here this morning, you're struggling deeply with sin. Sin with ruts so deep you cannot see a way out. This is where the call is to call on Christ. He is your way out. He's your only way out. But you might say, well, that, isn't that easy? That seems a little too easy just to say, hey, you're struggling with deep, profound sin. Call on Jesus and you'll be free. Uh, my, my grandfather struggled with this on his deathbed. He couldn't accept a grace this free. Isn't that easy? But friends, there is nothing cheap about the grace of God. It costs Jesus his life to obtain it for you. And to call on it, it will cost you your life too. You too must die to yourself. But it's only in dying that you can be resurrected again. And you will be resurrected if you call on his blood because it speaks a better word, not a word of death, but a word of life, a word of resurrection, resurrection living. And, you know, as we walk into this truth of repentance and walking in the light as he is in light, we do this as a community, don't we? We are each other's keepers in this room. When I say that, it doesn't mean we're each other's judges. I can't actually judge your soul. You can't judge mine, even if you want to. But we are each other's keepers. We're called to be in each other's lives, to guard and protect each other from sin, to call out sin, to call each other to repentance and to repent to each other when we do sin and to extend the grace of God to each other, extend the blood of Christ to each other. And as we do this, we don't give the seed of the serpent any place to plant itself in our souls because we're always gonna be a, a mixed bag of affections and we need each other to, to encourage us on these pathways and then as we're united to Christ and as we grow up in him, one of the beautiful things that happens is actually our affections for him grow. And as our affections for the Lord grow, our, our affections for the world become less and less attractive because you're given new eyes to see. And you begin to see the, 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 the offerings of the world for what they are. And this is what you get with the eyes of faith. And this is what we encourage with one another as we walk together in this faith. May we be a people who walk in faith. May we trust. May we believe. May we see our sin for what it is. And may we ever walk in the great blood of Christ, trusting and resting in his grace that covers all our sins. Pray with me. God, in your infinite mercy, in your grace, I pray that you would draw us out of darkness and into your marvelous light that we would trust in you, that we would be stirred by our worship for you, and when we're not, that we would repent, that we would humbly come to you and say, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm stuck in sin, help me out of my sin. I pray that we would trust in your grace, trust in your mercy, trust in your work, and that we would lay down our deadly doing. We pray this in the name of Christ, amen.